This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialists. Good morning. In today's headline, Senator Josh Hawley and other lawmakers call for a hate crime investigation in the Tennessee shooting. Police have not yet confirmed a motive. We have the latest on the horrific school shooting. A fire that killed nearly 40 people at a Mexican migrant facility yesterday was allegedly started by detained migrants. Mexico's president says they were protesting possible deportation. We have the details. High drama on the Ohio River, a barge holding nearly 1,500 tons of toxic methanol breaks free from a tugboat. We have more on the developing story. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen departed for New York earlier this morning despite Beijing's threats of retaliation. Why is this trip important? We find out with an expert. And a Texas mom sends her daughter to a charter school promising diversity and inclusion, but she got a lot more than what she bargained for, and now she's speaking out. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, March 29th, and we're actually waiting for Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen to arrive here in New York today. But before we go into this, we're starting with the latest in the Tennessee school shooting. Senator Josh Hawley is calling on the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to investigate the shooting as a hate crime. Nashville police say the shooting was premeditated and targeted against the Christian school but have not yet confirmed a motive. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has the updates. Senator Josh Hawley on Tuesday urged FBI Director Christopher Wray and Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas to immediately open an investigation into the shooting as a federal hate crime. A crime that according to Nashville police, specifically targeted, that's their word, targeted, the members of this Christian community. Hawley insisted the full resources of the federal government be used to determine the root cause of the shooting and if others influenced the horrific act. Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked if he plans on opening a hate crime investigation for the targeting of Christians during an unrelated hearing Tuesday. The motive is what determines whether it's a hate crime or not. Garland says the Justice Department will do everything within its power to prevent further horrific shootings. Police body cam footage released Tuesday shows officers putting the shooter down as she fired on police cars arriving at the school. Authorities say the 28-year-old female shooter who identified as transgender was under care for an emotional disorder. Investigators found a manifesto in her belongings, along with other writings and a drawn map of the school. Police stated they believe the shooter resented having to attend the Christian school. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The fire at a Mexican migrant facility that killed 38 people was allegedly started by the migrants themselves. Most of them were from Central and South America. And today's Cost Jimenez has more on the story. Mexican President López Obrador said the fire was started by migrants who protested after learning they would be deported. Surveillance video footage obtained by U.S. media outlets shows what appeared to be guards walking away during the blaze as the room filled with smoke. 
Mourners held a vigil outside the offices of the Mexican National Migration Institute in the border city of Ciudad Juarez. To all of those people who died, the guards could have opened the gates because there was only a few meters between the gate that separated them from the migration officers. They didn't open the gate, leaving them locked in. Migrants and activists protested outside the migration center on Tuesday. We demand justice for those who were inside. They had been inside there for a month. They cried out of hunger because they didn't give them food. It's not fair, honestly. Immigration authorities identified the dead and injured as being from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Venezuela, Colombia and Ecuador. The fire is one of the deadliest migrant tragedies in years. It occurred as the United States and Mexico are battling to cope with record levels of border crossings. Recent weeks have seen a buildup of migrants in Mexican border cities. Costemenes, NTD News. In other news, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried had another charge added to his indictment yesterday. Federal prosecutors allege he bribed Chinese regime officials with $40 million in cryptocurrency. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the new charge. The founder of bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange FTX is now facing a 13-count indictment. Federal prosecutors on Tuesday stated that accounts belonging to Bankman-Fried and others directed and caused the transfer of at least $40 million in crypto to Chinese government officials. Chinese authorities froze accounts for Bankman-Fried's hedge fund Alameda Research in November 2021. The Chinese regime has been cracking down on cryptocurrency since 2017. It banned digital currencies in September 2021. Prosecutors say Bankman-Fried and his colleagues employed numerous legal and personal methods to unfreeze the accounts. The accounts contained roughly $1 billion worth of crypto. The indictment says Bankman-Fried directed a multi-million dollar bribe to influence and induce Chinese officials to unfreeze some of the accounts. He is accused of violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, an anti-bribery statute. Bankman-Fried was previously accused of stealing billions of dollars in customer funds to plug losses at his hedge fund, money laundering, and orchestrating an illegal campaign donation scheme to buy influence in Washington. He has pleaded not guilty to eight of the 12 prior counts he faces. Bankman-Fried is expected to be arraigned Thursday on the latest charge. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. More news involving China. A bipartisan bill to revoke communist China of its international status as a developing nation passed 415 to 0 in the House on Monday. It would limit the benefits and aid China receives from the U.S. and other nations. It's now moving on to the Senate. We take a closer look at the implications. We're joined live by Brandon Weikert. He's a geopolitical analyst and senior editor at 1945.com. He's also the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Thanks for bringing us your insight, Brandon. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The House passed this bill unanimously. What does that signify about the current state of U.S.-China relations? Well, it says that even though Democrats and Republicans can't seem to agree on anything, the one thing they agree on is that China is a growing threat, and that's a good thing for us. China is definitely developing rapidly, and the Chinese regime has been spending billions in its Belt and Road Initiative for a decade. So why is the U.S. seeking to strip this status now? 
Well, because I think we've been slow to realize the threat, and I think that now we are awakening to it because it's so obvious, and we have to start attacking this threat, not first with military. It has to be first in the economic domain, which is where the Chinese have been attacking us first for the last 50 years, using trade as a weapon for them to beat us, not as a win-win. And so now, finally, Congress is waking up. Hopefully, it's not too little too late, though. Yes, and of course, there are many reasons to revoke this status. But as of 2019, about a quarter of China was in poverty. What about the poor people in China's West? What impact would this potential law have on them? Well, unfortunately, their government has enough money to actually start reinvesting in that part of their country. But it seems that all Beijing wants to do with that money is use it to imprison the Uyghurs in the western part of that country. So, you know, maybe they should start taking all of the money they've made. This is the second largest economy in the world and start actually reinvesting it in things that will help grow the economy in western China rather than using it to oppress their people there. Yes, oppression is not a good investment. Why is revoking China's developing nation status in America's interest? Well, because the Chinese have used that as an excuse to get really good sweetheart trade deals with America. And then once China gets these deals, they use that as a weapon, as a tool, not only to gain access to our market, but then they use that to ensnare our businesses and our political elites in a web of espionage and uh, other nefarious doings. And so by giving them this status, it's also making us look, making it look like they're weaker than us and that they really should be given a leg up over us because we're developed and we're superior and they're not. Well, actually, they're pretty much on par with us these days. And if you listen to the economists, they say in another 10 years, less than that, China might actually be the number one economy and we might be the number two economy. So it's time that we, we remove all of these these weighted, uh, these, these handicaps in their favor. Yeah, something needs to be done. And if China's status is revoked, how do you anticipate the Chinese Communist Party will respond? Do we expect a retaliation? Well, I'm sure they will, but they've been retaliating against us for years. So it's nothing new. Uh, it's just, it's we're finally calling them out for their bad behavior. We haven't done it for so long. They've gotten away with so much. We need to finally start calling them out when they abuse uh, gifts, really, to them. And so it's, it's going to happen, the retaliation, but we need to be ready for it. And uh, we should welcome it, actually, because we're no longer going to put up with this. Nothing new here. Retaliation back and forth. Brandon Weikert, author and geopolitical analyst, it is great to have your analysis today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen will arrive in New York tonight. Beijing warned her that it will resolutely hit back if she should go ahead and meet U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But Tsai says external pressure will not stop Taiwan from engaging with the world. What's the significance of this visit? I spoke to an expert. Joining me now is Riley Walters. He's a senior fellow at the Global Taiwan Institute and the deputy director of the Hudson Institute Japan Chair. Riley, welcome. This is the seventh time Tsai will be visiting the U.S. But this time around, we are seeing U.S.-China relations worsen. So I'm wondering, you know, what's the purpose of this visit for Tsai Ing-wen this time? And what's the significance here? Well, I think her trip this time definitely has a lot of significance. This could potentially be her last visit to the United States as the president of Taiwan. Um, but you're right, you know, the tensions between the U.S. and China are really heated right now. And uh, we're seeing a lot of changes out of China, a much more aggressive tone uh, in its global presence. And it's really upsetting not just the United States, but its partners and allies, including Japan and 
those in the European Union, who they themselves are also looking to engage more with Taiwan, I think, both this year and in the future. So um, I think it really sets a tone for the future of the uh, relationship between Taiwan and its global partners. And I think it's really um, you know, a momentous occasion to celebrate. But what about, you know, from a U.S. point point of view, why is protecting Taiwan or forming this um, relationship of importance to the U.S.? Well, the United States has had a long, uh, you know, I think fruitful relationship with Taiwan. Um, there's a lot of things that we share, a lot of common values, such as our, our uh, appreciation of democracy, our, our individual liberties that we like to respect and protect, that we, we share across the Pacific. And uh, there are other uh, after, uh, other ways that we engage a lot with Taiwan. Uh, you know, we do a lot of trade and investment with Taiwan. Taiwan is, of course, a uh, essential partner in the semiconductor uh, supply chain. Uh, but there's also, you know, a, a lot of other technical and and, um, and social ways that we sort of engage. I think with Taiwan, the engagement between the U.S. and Taiwan uh, during the Biden administration with President Tsai, I think, is is really endearing. Uh, we do have we have seen a lot of efforts, a lot of bilateral dialogues, for example, emerge, uh, new initiative on trade, um, and this kind of just I think feeds into that continued momentum. You know, we want to really make sure that these efforts continue uh, even after she's out of office. Hmm. All right, and the Biden administration is emphasizing that this is a common meeting of personal nature, but how will China view this visit? And will we? Do you think we will see any further reactions from them, China? I mean. I, I would not be surprised to see reaction uh, out of China. You know, when um, Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, there was a lot of reaction. And, uh, you know, I've been looking at the numbers of uh, PLA, for example, uh, flights and vessels within the Taiwan Strait. And it's been relatively quiet this week, but of course, the president uh, just left uh, out of Taiwan. So, you know, I would expect to see a lot more, uh, for example, military activity. That tends to be. China's number one use of signaling uh, is to uh, fly fly uh, aircraft, uh, ship vessels, and occasionally launch missiles. Um, you know, it, I don't necessarily think it, it's appropriate, and I don't think those efforts ever necessarily work. But that that tends to be the way that they operate: is that um, they're they're pretty quick to show their d uh, disapproval through military action. Mm, okay, and let's keep an eye on that and keep us updated. Thanks, Riley Walters. I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, school games can be a lot of fun, but a Texas mom says the game her daughter played at a charter school was anything but that. And a barge filled with toxic chemicals breaks free from a tugboat on the Ohio River. We've got that and more when we return. Welcome back. A toxic chemical-filled barge broke loose on the Ohio River and partially sank. Authorities haven't reported any leaks so far. Ten barges in total broke free from a tugboat in Kentucky. Seven have been recovered. The remaining three are pinned against a dam, including one containing 1,400 tons of methanol. Methanol is an extremely poisonous chemical, but authorities believe it would dilute quickly if any leaks occurred. However, some fish die-off would be expected. The other barges were carrying soy and corn. A Texas mom is fired up after teachers made her 13-year-old daughter play a sexually themed game at school. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the story. 
so she feels great. When Laura Gruber learned a charter school was being built down the street, she was very pleased. As a relatively liberal person, KIPP Academy's message of celebrating diversity, equity, and inclusion resonated just fine with her, and the nearby location was convenient. But things would soon take a turn for the worse. Gruber learned that her daughter was asked to play a seducing hooker in an unusual classroom game. I was shocked. I was shocked. And that was when I was like, you know what, this is, I'm over it. Uh, thankfully, no kids were touched. Thankfully, you know. But where, at what point does sexualization, you know, begin in the eyes of, of these groomers? So both kids gave me the same account. Uh, my daughter's class was lined up in order from uh, youngest to oldest, which is, you know, least mature to most mature. Um, and then the other little girl's class was uh, offered candy. Gruber discovered the game was an adult drinking game version of rock, paper, scissors called Bear, Hooker, Hunter. Uh, at which point, now I understood at this time, literally it just was like this aha moment, like, that's what the other side is talking about. Like, I get it. This is happening. This is real. The angry mom yeah, took so action immediately, pulling her daughter from school and calling the school's principal. I believe that, you know, quick apology, like, hey, we're sorry, could have been, you know, in place during that meeting. But it was more of a, um, you know, we'll get back to you. And when she got back to me, um, she said, you know, while we have while we agree that the game was inappropriate, we don't find that children were sexualized through it. Gruber believes more needs to be done. I would have definitely fired the teacher, um, and I would hold accountable each level of administration that denied that having a child pose in front of a class um, as a seducing, you know, hooker is not sexualization. Like, they, they need to be held accountable. The school later apologized in a letter to parents, admitting that the game, quote, did not meet our bar of excellence. Gruber says the experience taught her many lessons. When you care about family, you need to do your homework in schools. And if you're not doing your homework in schools, uh, you know, there's a problem. But also you, also, you need to do your homework with who you're choosing to represent you as well. And she's making sure people learn about what happened. She has visited the state capitol, sat in senators' offices, and says this won't be the last people hear from her. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And with tourism having seen a rapid decline in recent years, much of Thailand's marine life has revived. But new challenges arise as tourists begin to return. Here's NTD's Kos Temenes with more. Maya Beach in Thailand's Krabi province is a popular tourist attraction. First closed in 2018 to mitigate the effects of excessive tourism, the pandemic caused tourists to stay away until early last year, causing coral to revive and marine life to thrive. But with an end to the pandemic and pressure from tour operators, tourists started to return, and so did the challenges that come with them. Conservation group Maya Sharkwatch goes to the island once a month to collect data, using drones and underwater cameras. We have counted the highest amount of black tip reef shark, which is 161 shark at uh, a given time. And that is in November 2021. And after it was reopened for a year, uh, in November 2022, we have come back to uh, try and use the same drone technique to count the number of shark. And we have an average number of around uh, 20 to 40 sharks per day. Blacktip reef sharks are incredibly important to the ecosystem as they help maintain ecological balance by controlling the marine population. Maya Bay is also a crucial nursery for young sharks, which could easily fall prey to adult sharks. 
Authorities have put new measures in place, including swimming restrictions, in order to not disturb the baby sharks. If you can create and come up with the new image of Maya Bay as a nature reserve, as a strict nature reserve for shark, I think that it's actually going to bring new um, uh, tourism scheme as well. The aim is not reducing tourist numbers or closing the area off, but managing tourism more wisely in the future. Cost MNS, NTD News. Coming up, we hear from a survivor of an abortion. She shares about the spiritual experience that sent her down a road to forgiveness. And attention to all passengers, the TSA has just posted a reminder that peanut butter is classified as a liquid, sparking an online debate. Details on this when we return. Good to have you back. The issue of abortion is front and center once again as a federal court considers a potential ban on abortion drugs. Today we hear the story of an abortion survivor and her journey to forgiveness. 44-year-old Jennifer Milborn was born and raised in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois by her birth mother's sister and her husband. She always knew she was adopted, but it wasn't until when she was 19 that she learned her birth mother had tried to abort her. And I was very ashamed because I didn't want anyone in the world to know that I was that unwanted, that someone didn't want me to the point to where they were willing to take my life. And I definitely wrestled with a bit of shame and guilt over it. Milborn's birth mother was unmarried at the time and was 16 weeks pregnant when she went to a rural abortion clinic. But the baby's head was larger than expected and didn't fit in the vacuum tube, so the clinician had to pull back. The abortionist sent my birth mom home saying, you know, we tore the embryonic sac, more than likely you're going to miscarry. And since she was an alcoholic already, they probably figured, of course she'd miscarry. Milborn buried her pain and shame for a decade. She eventually shared her truth with her husband and soon after a spiritual experience prompted her to think about forgiving her birth mom. I was actually cleaning uh, my bathroom floor, uh, listening to worship music. And I, I sensed, uh, like I kind of heard, you know, that inside voice we have that I needed to forgive my birth mom. And I tried several times to ignore that small voice. And I realized I am having a moment with God himself. And so I just started sobbing and I felt that unction to utter the words. I forgive her, so I did. Advocating for life has now become Melbourne's passion and purpose. She has since met other abortion survivors and joined a nonprofit called Abortion Survivors Network. She thanks God for saving her life. For him to save my life, I owe him everything. And I want to speak out for all those that didn't make it, that should have made it, who shouldn't have perished the way that they did. You know, Abortion isn't just about the mother, it's about the baby. Milborn represents fellow abortion survivors at every annual March for Life rally. She argues that the overturning of Roe v. Wade was a good step in the right direction, but there is still work to be done. Abortion is um, a very selfish type of medical procedure. In fact, it's the only me medical procedure that when a doctor fails, a life is saved. Milborn said she's fully forgiven her birth mother now noted that her birth mother was also a victim of the abortion industry, just like she herself was.
Wow, what an incredible story. I've never heard any story, like I've never heard from an abortion survivor. Yeah, and it's just so great that she found it in her heart to forgive her. I agree, yes. And it's a solid, it's a gas, it's actually a liquid. The TSA has a reminder for passengers, and it's sparking controversy online. The agency classifies peanut butter as a liquid. TSA explained its reasoning in a recent tweet. It says, you may not be nuts about it, but TSA considers peanut butter a liquid. The tweet explains that because it has no definite shape and takes the form of its container. The agency also informed customers that each carry-on is limited to 3.4 ounce containers of peanut butter. That's part of TSA's 311 rule for flyers. It says liquids, gels, spreadables, and aerosols must be limited to 3.4 ounces or less for carry-on. Twitter users did not take the information lightly and began spreading the news to friends and family, debating whether peanut butter is in fact a liquid. Hmm. It just so happens that the TSA has a list regarding foods that follow the same rule. Such items include dips and spreads, hummus, as well as jam and jelly. Yeah, so if it takes the shape of its container, what does that mean that sand is a liquid? Ah, I don't know. <laughs> so many questions. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, at least we're still allowed to carry equal amounts of peanut butter and jelly because I don't want my sandwich to be unbalanced. Oh, that's important. Yes, we don't <laughs> want that. Actually, funny thing is, though, it, peanut butter and jelly individually are considered liquids, but the completed sandwich, sandwich by itself is you can you can just take uh, take them on the plane without any limitations. So you found a loophole. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. The more you know, right? <laughs> All right, that's it from us. Write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.